Welcome to Dr. Stu's podcast. It's me, Dr. Stu, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. This is podcast number 121. If you'd like to reach us, you can reach me at askdrstu at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can find us on iTunes, drstuspodcast.com. We got all kinds of places. I'm here with my good friend, protege, Bliss Young today, who I have an affectionate nickname for. How are you doing today? Are you going to tell them? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm doing pretty good. (laughs) Yes. uh, Yes. You can tell what your nickname is. Oh, he calls me Blister. Yeah. It's a great nickname. (laughs) Yeah. So Blister, you doing good today? I'm doing okay. Okay. I'm yeah, glad to be here with you. Yeah, it's, it's a little hectic time here in Los in the Southern California area. Uh, this podcast may air, hopefully by the time this airs, the, the hullabaloo will die down, but there's been like terrible fires going on. Yep. And uh, Friends that have lost their homes. Yep. It's very sad. Yep. A lot of friends. Places where I used to live have burned to the ground up in Ojai in that area. Yep. And uh, a place we did a birth together. Yep. It's gone. It's gone. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Very sad. And uh, yeah, it's uh, and so it's smoky and air air quality is bad. Although on the eastern side of eastern eastern part of the city, it's a pretty clear day today. I mean, it's pretty spectacularly clear. Yeah, I was about a mile from uh, one of the fires that was right off the 405 in Brentwood, and uh, we were waiting to be evacuated for two days. Kids are not in school, Um, but yesterday I drove around, and and even though I hadn't gotten the official word, um, it was looking much better in terms of fires. But I know that Ventura County is still really feeling it, and then some fires broke out in San Diego, some of my friends down there in San Diego. Yeah, we're not done. No. Uh, We're not done. Uh, Again, it's been... You know, it just this every every year that I've been here for thirty five years now, they've had some sort of wildfire someplace. Oh yeah, but this one, this particular well, this was outbreak. such you know, highly populated areas, yeah, which is what really like the last over five hundred structures I heard, yeah, something it's like that. Crazy. Anyway, um, so far I haven't had a birth in that direction. It would have been a disaster because uh, all like I do births up towards Santa Barbara, Ventura. There would be no way to have gotten up there this weekend. So, Do you have clients up there right I now? I do, but one, she's 35 weeks, so she's oh, not okay. going anywhere. Actually, they went up to Morro Bay to get out of the air because they said the air quality in Santa Barbara was horrible. And you uh, you talk about the uh, mammalian model of birth and, and how, you know, if we're in fear, we don't let go of our hormones in the same way. So I imagine a lot of those moms are keeping their babies in right now anyways. Uh, yeah, I would suspect yeah. so. I mean, that that's actually very a uh, very primitive instinct uh, when you're fleeing a predator or obviously a fire. I mean, no other, I think other mammals too, although I don't know it's time for birthing for deer or rabbit. rabbit. Well, rabbits, they birth all the time. But <laughs> uh, for deer and stuff, I mean, I don't think that any deer would have gone into labor in the last couple of weeks. So, yeah. right. Thank uh, goodness. Yeah, thanks goodness. So everything else is okay though, as, as much as it can be. Yeah, just you know. Okay. Helping people. You're looking. Have you're looking good. You're looking. Oh, wow. You're looking really good. My Kings are on a roll. Yeah, you were. Yeah, saying. as of today, they've won seven games in a row. And uh, have been you been going to the games? You've been going to the home games. Uh, yeah. uh, well, the last home stand they lost four out of five, and that was horrible. But but this home stand so far, they're they're uh, two and zero, oh, and they won four on the road, and they won a, a game when I was back for during Thanksgiving. I went home to see my family which was really nice. Oh, another big milestone that happened uh, a week ago, a week and a half ago, was uh, on Wednesday, November 29th, I, uh, at 9.30 at night, I drove down to San Diego oh, yeah. uh, to meet my daughter at 11.30 at night. And we hung out at her place, met her roommates for the first time this year. And then we, she and I just walked over to a local pub and 
at 12 o'clock, we tried to walk into a pub because she turned 21 and, <laughs> of course, didn't realize that San Diego County has an ordinance that says a day is a day. And so it was still considered the 29th, even though it was now the 30th. Aww. And they weren't going to let us in. But uh, because I think my daughter was there with her old man and not a bunch of partygoers, uh, he took mercy on us and, and let, let us let her in. in. And oh, that's good. Said, that's don't good. tell anybody. So uh, hopefully there's no podcast. Well, I'm not going to tell you where we went so because <laughs> uh, I don't want to get... Uh, this gentleman, who was very nice, got let us in, and we had uh, shots of tequila, and then we had some margaritas. <laughs> and you then, guys went for it. Yep, and then we went and got uh, munched out on burritos, <laughs> and then I drove home. So I got home at 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, Did you I, just tell everybody that you took shots of tequila and margaritas and then drove, drove home? home? Well, yeah, but I had a burrito. <laughs> okay. So it really absorbed. It was a giant burrito, too, <laughs> so it really absorbed everything. I'm not recommending that uh, anybody listening do the same thing, but... Now that it's over, no one can prove that it's actually true. It could have just been a tale that I was telling. <laughs> that sounds fun to celebrate your daughter's birthday. So uh, let's see. I just wanted to figure out where we should pick up today because I have so much on our agenda. We're not going to get it all done in Podcast 121. But I thought, you know, last p- podcast we start, we talked a little bit about um, VBAC and we went over the ACOG guidelines, uh, the new ACOG guidelines. And I just wanted to, you know, I was... I had a woman come into my office uh, about two weeks ago uh, for a consult regarding breach delivery and external version. And because we live in the era now where everything needs to be consented, I have consents in my, in my uh, word, word file, and I pulled up two different consent forms, one of which was very gentle and sweet and very nice. And the other consent form for external version, I have to read to you because... It's yours? No, uh, oh. this is off the internet. Oh, okay. Okay, these are both off the internet. Okay. Okay, one is from a midwifery, a midwifery <laughs> organization, and uh, one is from, uh, I think it's generic, uh, probably legally written. Well, it is legally written when you hear, <laughs> when you hear <laughs> why, why people, I mean, people got to sign these things without reading them, because anybody that reads them would never sign them. So what's the, what's the purpose of informed consent? Can we just take a step back? Why would you? Why would you? What's do the true purpose of informed yeah. consent? Why would we? The, why would we? What's the real doing? purpose of informed consent? That's either. Why don't you? Tell well, let's us start both. with the, the true purpose of informed consent is to give people information about the risks and benefits of all the basically reasonable choices. Um, like I don't think when you give somebody a shot of lidocaine before you take off a mole that you need to tell them they can die from a shot of local anesthesia. All right. But technically speaking, there are people who would say you should inform people that, that. so you have to, if, if informed consent really covered every risk and possibility, it would, it would take too long to give informed consent, especially with the model by which most hospital practices, doctor's practices are, they don't have the time to sit and give true informed consent. So we all give a bit of a skewed informed consent. But the, the real thing is to give a woman, in my field, a woman choices of this or that, and here's the risks of doing this, here's the risks of not doing this, here's the risk of doing that, here's the not risk of doing that, and then what, and also the benefits of both. And then letting them make a reasonable decision. That mm-hmm. would be ethically what true informed consent is all about. There's always a question, can you ever really give true informed consent? And the answer is it's probably not possible by a human being because we all uh, have facial expressions and biases that when we talk about stuff, people can read us and tell us that we whether it's something that we really think is reasonable or not. Right. And so everybody skews it. But what happens most of the time is that if a hospital or a physician wants 
a patient to do a certain thing, they will skew their consent to, fu- to funnel them down the path to make them do that. Right. We've okay. all seen that happen. But the truth about informed consent is it depends on who's giving it. Because if it's coming from the hospital, the hospital's primary concern is their liability. So they want to cover their liability. And mm-hmm. this is what... And and the, the and and most practitioners would probably feel the same way. I don't think most midwives feel when they give in consent that their primary concern is talking about their liability. Their primary concern, I think, is educating the woman and letting her res- and respect uh, her decision making process. What would you think about that? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think midwifery, when it became a profession, it has shifted, and we have a lot of the same concerns that doctors have now. Um, But I think that our intention, as much as possible, is to help the woman participate and be a partner in her decision-making process, so empowering her with the information so that she can um, really make a reasonable choice rather than, you know, what I tell people a lot is like in the in the traditional model, a lot of times you go into the hospital or you go into a doctor and you say, take care of this for me. I want you to just tell me what to do. And I've had clients who have said, you know, recently I had someone with GBS say, I just want you to tell me what to do. And I said, ah, you know, I can't do that. But we can talk about your options again. But I'm, I can't tell you the right thing to do for you and your family because there's risks to both. Right. But yeah. when you're giving consent to a, a client, a new client comes to your office and wants to have a home birth and she asks you, what are the risks, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going you're gonna to say the basic things. Well, we can't guarantee that you're, you'll be successful. There's always a possibility that the baby could um, suffer an injury, that, that you could need to be transported either by car or by ambulance. And, and here's some of the things. We even, may even talk about shoulder dystocia. We may even talk about you know, how we resuscitate a baby, that sort of thing, or, or hemorrhage. But we're not, we don't necessarily get into the weeds so to speak, mm-hmm. of every possible risk that could possibly go by. Like you might end up with a hysterectomy or die. True. I, mean, I have seen some uh, informed disclosures, which as a midwife, we have to give to our clients saying that we don't have liability and we don't have a doctor backing us and all of that stuff. I've seen some from from other friends who do go over very, very specific specific things that could happen and I'm I'm like do wow, they go over it all. verbally face to face or do they hand a person a document and have them read it and yeah it? it's usually a document okay yeah so here's the problem with a with a document uh, that's written by probably attorneys uh, or hospital administrators I just you know again I, I have my thing for hospital administrators and attorneys so for, please forgive me but it's based on years of experience and mm-hmm. uh, an observation so I've reached a new milestone, by the way, at Dr. Stu's podcast, at number 121. Mm-hmm. I now have to put on Dr. Stu's podcast reading glasses. <laughs> so Is that since, I, since 120 that's happened? Yeah, well, it's just when the, print, when the print's that small. <laughs> and actually, I think it's worse. Maybe they're dirty. <laughs> I can't. I can't. I see it's worse. We both have reading oh, glasses Oh, my God. It's horrible. Okay. So this is titled Informed Consent and Request for External Cephalic Version. And it's a, you know, it's a generic, basically it says... Do not sign this form until you've read it fully and understand its contents. It says patient name. You fill it in. And uh, then it gives a following that explained to me in general terms. I understand that this diagnosis requiring this procedure is a, pre- is a pregnancy in which the baby is breech uh, or in another malpresentation. The nature of the procedure is manually turning the baby by pushing on the patient's abdomen. The purpose of this procedure is to move the baby from a breech or other malpresentation into a vertex presentation. Basically, pretty yep. straightforward. Yeah. Okay. Number four, material risks of the procedure. Let me know if you'd sign this. Maybe we'll ask producer John whether he'd sign this too. As a result of this procedure being performed, there may be material risks of infection, 
allergic reaction, disfiguring scar, severe loss of blood, loss or loss of function of any limb or organ, paralysis or partial paralysis, paraplegia or quadriplegia, brain damage, cardiac arrest, or death. <laughs> Have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, probably not. Okay. Yeah. So, what? I mean, I mean who, who wrote this? Who writes stuff like this? Are those true risks? I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I mean, I can't tell whether they're talking about the mother or the baby either. It doesn't mm-hmm. say. It just mm-hmm. says material risks. Mm-hmm. But to me, it, I think it means the mother. Because then it goes on and talks about some of the things that might happen to the baby. Like cord, pressure of the cord, uh, separation of the placenta, uh, RH sensitization if you're RH negative. Right. Uh, maternal discomfort. But I'm talking, I mean, I'm this paragraph, all right? Loss of function of any limb or organ, paralysis or partial paralysis, paraplegia, quadriplegia, brain damage, cardiac arrest or death. Yeah. Ext- I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't know, that has, has it ever happened? You probably would know more than I do because well, you do these. Yeah, I know that. We were yeah. talking the other day about, about um, the recommendation, we're going to get to it a little bit about flu vaccine in, in pregnant women. We're going to talk a little bit about that in a minute because it's one of those things that's co- that comes up a lot now that we're getting into basically flu season and we, we've been in it. But, but I work with um, four other physicians in my office, all right? Between us, we have well over 100 years of obstetrical experience, well over 100 years, maybe more like 120 years of obstetrical experience. Not one of us has ever seen somebody who's pregnant die or get really, really, really sick from the flu. Right. Okay. Yet the standard recommendation for all pregnant women without any evidence to support its safety is to give all pregnant women the flu vaccine. Right. Okay. So the point being is that what does common or frequent or serious side effect or serious complication actually mean in actual numbers? Because, you know, we've had the relative risk, actual risk conversation many times on the podcast and and relative risk may be high, but actual risk may still be ridiculously low. And I don't know that when I read an article in a journal or a throwaway journal or something, when they talk about severe complication or common, but there's never a definition of what severe complication or common means. But I have to say that in 130 years, 120 years of, of obstetrical experience in my office, not one of us have ever seen something like this, nor have any of us ever seen a woman having a version of suffer paraplegia or quadriplegia. Did you talk to them about it? Well, yeah, we did yeah. because, you know me, at, uh, at the lunch, we sit in the lunchroom and we go over the stupid stuff of the day or the week and, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, we try to avoid politics and, you know, that. we talk about our kids a lot, that sort of thing and all the adventures that they're having, but th- that just tells us we're getting older. <laughs> pretty soon, pretty soon we'll be, we'll be talking about our grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll really need to, then I'll have to get my glasses on for sure. But I'm just saying that, that I, I, I read this and I'm just putting it out there for listeners to understand the lunacy by which these standard consent forms are handed to people, oftentimes in the midst of distress or stressful situations, and people don't read them. Because nobody in their right mind who reads this would sign this. Right. Well, I, you know, I try and when I'm talking to clients about this kind of thing, too, I, I try and equate it to something that we, risks that we take every day. Like, 
I think we when we used to do our um, lectures at the sanctuary with Elliot Berlin, he would he would talk about how much risk there is to getting in our car and driving down the street. But we don't like take these precautions to put like a cage around our car or something. No, it's much more risky as a matter of fact. Yeah. And and so we take, you know, we get on planes, we do all these things that are that are quote unquote risky. Um and we don't think about it. But something like this that probably has a lot less risk or that we do a lot less frequently, um, we we have so much fear. So it's evolved to a point where where we're so litigious as a society that we have to write ridiculous things to cover our, our asses. Is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, and I think that that the medical risk factor seems to cause so much fear for people, especially in something that's a biological function of our body. I mean, it's one thing if you're going in for surgery or you have cancer or, you know, you have these things that really are that that there's a lot of risk to it. Right. But something like that we do every day, like eating, breathing, having sex, driving down the street, walking down the street. Um, there should be some normalcy to it, but there's now there's so much fear around it. Mm-hmm. That the simplest thing <laughs> should definitely be disclosures <laughs> can, for yeah, dating. Disclosures and consent forms for dating for sure. <laughs> yes. There's a possibility that during this thing, I may brush up against you. I may you touch can. your butt. I may, well, ask you for a kiss. I may tell you you look nice in that dress. You could break your heart. <laughs> yes, yes, right. And there's no guarantees. Right? I want a disclosure right. All right. next time. So anyway, the, uh, this I, I mean clearly this is a standardized consent form, uh, but it is like I said I read at the beginning. It's it's listed as it's for if it's for external version. Further oh, so you th- think it's a risk for any procedure? Well, I think <laughs> that they probably have happen. a what do you call it a um, where they have a, a blanket. Uh, template template thank you mm-hmm. yeah, you have a template mm-hmm. right and i think they write stuff in but it's, it actually doesn't look like that i mean it looks like it's all been written for this one thing and further down the last thing i'll say about this is they they add i further consent to retention by the hospital of any tissues specimens organs or limbs removed from the patient's body during the proposed procedures to be examined by pathologists to be used for scientific or teaching purposes and to be disposed of in the discretion of the hospital and its medical staff so I just want to warn my listeners that next time they get a version that that they are signing away the right to keep their le- their left or right arm just in case it falls off. All right, I, I you know terrifying. I, I have no idea why they put that in there other than it's a standard consent form. Mm-hmm. But why would anybody make a woman coming in to try to turn her baby sign something like this unless you're not thinking about the beauty of the experience? Of pregnancy, for to, uh, that, that what it means to a woman. You're basically just covering your your asses. No, I don't think the beauty of a pregnancy for most women is considered during these procedures at all. That leads me to actually read something that my friend Rick Safree sent me. Uh, we're doing. She's doing this thing. She's collating all these things about breach delivery. She's doing a great job on it. And our paper uh, that we submitted on home breach delivery is still in the peer review process. We checked on that last week, and uh, we're still waiting for our second peer reviewer. Um, so you're done with it? Oh, the paper's been submitted. It was submitted in September. Oh, awesome. So we're just waiting. It's now December. It's taking pr- long. And she thinks it's just hard for them to find a reviewer that has the time to actually do this sort of thing. Because we gave them a list of people we thought would be good for reviewing. So we're waiting on that. But she sent me this, and I just think it's, it was very nice. It's, it's from um, a textbook written in 1998 called Progress in Obstetrics and Gynecology in a chapter written by a person named Thorpe Beeston called Management of Breach Presentation at Term. And the, the book is, quote, the existing evidence regarding the optimal management is imperfect and 
Even if there was a prospective trial of significant magnitude, there remains an element of the equation to which it is impossible to assign a statistic or a number, the individual woman's feelings. For some women, labor is an integral and treasured experience of pregnancy, something to be looked forward to and achieving a vaginal delivery, a life event of enormous magnitude. For others, delivery is an unwelcome bridge that has to be crossed and the option of a cesarean section may appear to be the answer to quiet prayers. The, answers, the answer must surely be to offer individual choice after appropriate consultation based on existing data, allowing time for reflection before arriving at a final decision. Yeah, that's great. Very true. Right. Yeah. It's true. Some people want an elective C-section and some people at all costs want to avoid a cesarean section. And we don't know what's behind that. We don't know what their life experiences are. And so to have, to have somebody write a consent form like we just read just basically goes to show that these people are so removed from the actual face-to-face, day-to-day care of the, uh, of the people that we're, you know, that we're assigned to care for. Yeah, and it's, it's not part of uh, what their focus is. I mean, even in the hospital, a lot of times when I go with my clients, I feel like the actual experience or the emphasis on um, her hormones being a big part of what's happening in this process is definitely not a priority because if it was, we wouldn't constantly be coming in and talking about our concerns with her labor, you know, and and doing um, things that might frighten her because that is ultimately going to cause the opposite of what it is that we're wanting, which is for her labor to progress naturally and for her to deliver her baby safely. Yeah. Well, we just had actually a, a transport uh, yesterday um, to California hospitals. The first time mom, and she just got exhausted. She'd been laboring for a really long time, and she got to like six centimeters, and then nothing really changed, and things had spaced out, and they came back, and she was, finally decided to go in, and she went in, and I, I think, I don't remember, I, I, maybe the time was, but about, probably about 18 to 24 hours later, um, she got a vaginal delivery you know, at the hospital, spontaneous, no vacuum, no forceps, um, with a very, uh, you know, I want to send a shout out to my friend, Tony Pickett. He's a, f- a physician. He's the OB chairman at California hospital here in Los Angeles. And, um, uh, he got really high ratings from the, uh, my midwife colleague who was there the whole time with this couple when they were pushing and through the delivery, but it was, you know, a th- two and a half, three day process for her, yeah. but her wishes were re- really respected. And I can got to imagine that being that long in a, a hospital, there w- she, a lot of people would not have respected her decision and she probably would have ended up with a cesarean section. Yeah. So I want to move on uh, to uh, something very similar to that. This is a, um, from a local hospital here, I asked a, a colleague of mine to get me a, a, a consent form for elective cesarean section. All right. And I think that this is for elective cesarean section in your first pregnancy, but it's still a, the same sort of verbiage that that I, I'm just wondering who makes this stuff up, mm-hmm. okay? So if you want to have a, if this is your first pregnancy and you're thinking about having an elective cesarean birth, there's certain facts and risks they want you to know. And so they list them here. For the mother, a cesarean birth is major surgery. Major surgeries have more risks. Increased chance of infection, more pain after surgery, longer to recover. Increased chances of bleeding, you may need a transfusion. Increased chance of harm to your uterus, bladder or bowel during surgery, increased chance of blood clots in your legs, increased chance of problems with future pregnancies, including having a cesarean birth for your next baby, stillbirth, uterine rupture, placenta previa, they don't mention accreta, but placenta accreta, hemorrhage, hysterectomy, infertility, sometimes death, very few women, okay? 
Mm-hmm. For baby, increased chance of breathing problems. Baby does not get exposed to normal bacteria from the mother during vaginal birth. I mean, you know, this is this is a, a form that actually is pretty good. I mean, it, it's telling all the risks. Right. Um, this can change the baby's immune system, increase risk of childhood asthma, problems with breastfeeding, small cuts from the knife during surgery to the you know, injury to the baby from the delivery. Um, you know, I find this to be very thorough as a consent form. Yeah. But I got to wonder who signs that if after reading that, what what are the what's the, what's the woman who reads this who decides I still want to have a cesarean section thinking and I want to hear it from. <laughs> From from someone who's never had an elective C-section? Correct, but someone who's had three babies. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I don't understand a lot of times when I am giving consent or when I'm hearing consent given in the hospital, um, what can motivate someone to take so much risk in something like a cesarean section and not be willing to take something that has such little risk like a like a home birth delivery. You know, like when I think about those two compared um, and, you know, I think you pointed to a woman's history could have a lot to do with that. And also our cultural influences, right? What's normal and what's considered abnormal. So in this culture, out of hospital deliveries is not the norm. And culturally, having a cesarean, 30 percent of women are having cesareans and talking to their friends and knowing that nothing really went wrong and, you know, the stories that we hear, I think that ends up normalizing it in their mind because they know a friend or many friends who have gone through this procedure and been just fine. So regardless of what this document says, I think a lot of your life experience ends up having a lot more influence in terms of how you make that decision. Yeah, but but it's such a small percentage of that 30% that are actually choosing to have elective, elective primary cesarean section. Yeah, I understand elective repeat cesarean section. I mean, I I, I do get that. Mm-hmm. All right, but mm-hmm. elective primary cesarean section is what this consent form is for. And I have to give commendation to the hospital for putting this out there because it almost seems like they're being honest enough to try to talk the woman out of it, and they're not really skewing their counseling because it's very honest. I counseling. think it's a very balanced. Right. They, they don't basically tell them the risks of vaginal birth, however. But I guess it's because they're trying to make sure that the woman who's choosing the cesarean knows what she's getting herself into. Right. 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 But at least it's written. I, I didn't see anything in there about dismembering or, or paraplegia or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or, or, you know or, or brain damage or anything like or that. Or that your limb would be donated. Yes. Yeah. yeah it wasn't anything in that consent form. So I just I want to give credit to, the, to, to them for, for doing that. I just think. After reading something like that and knowing the advantages to your baby even of having a vaginal birth, that it's got to be, you know, it's got to be some real issues going on for someone to continue to want to choose that. An elective? Yes. Yeah. Maybe. Now, how much of it do you think is the, the, the underground thing about wanting to save the vagina? Right? I was just going to say. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I know that. I mean, that's... They're, they're, Especially here in California or in L.A., I would assume that that's a really, a really big motivation is more cosmetic or, you know, vanity. But I do know some people who have chosen either pain medication or who have chosen a cesarean because of past trauma. And so that's the one that I, you know, I think we don't always know if there's some sexual trauma or some, I even had a client recently postpartum. We were talking about her choice to go in and get pain medication at a certain point. And um, the feeling that she was having in the moment that 
felt like very similar to when she was depressed as a young girl and wanting to kind of let go of being here on the planet. And that was so frightening to her that she felt like she needed to survive this experience through getting some pain management. And so that wasn't something that she prepared for because she didn't even think about that until she was actually in this experience that brought up that trauma again. We talk about sexual trauma a lot, but we don't talk about something like that, you know? Um, so that's a big motivator for people. Well, it's interesting because I can draw I, I can draw a little um, uh, parallel that, that doesn't really fit, sort of like, it's not like a, it's not hypocrisy, but it's really an interesting thing because here we have this hospital giving the women who wants to choose a elective surgery, true informed consent. And if they, and if she decides to go there anyway, they will be very happy to assist her. As they should. Right. All right. They're respecting her decision. Right. If, however, that woman was breach and they gave her a informed consent about the risks of vaginal breach, and then she said, That's okay, I'm still gonna want a vaginal breach, they're not going to be willing to support that. Right. They're gonna use their consent form to skew the woman away from what she wants to choose. Right. In my experience and yours. Yeah, it happens all and the time. 90% of our listeners, I'm sure. I had um, a client uh, tell me that when she was ready to leave the hospital, um, they, the pediatrician who came in said, you cannot leave before 24 hours because we have to give you the newborn screen test. And she said, that's okay, I'll decline the newborn screen test. And he put in the notes and told them that if they left before, that their insurance would not cover anything because it was against his advice and that they would definitely be contacting the social workers to talk to them, which to me is just pure bullying. I mean, there's no true informed consent for that client that she had the right to decline this test and to leave the hospital when there was no medical indication presenting for her or that baby to continue to stay in the hospital longer. And there's always the option of getting the newborn screen at home too. Yeah. Which, of course, most doctors don't know even exists because they don't bother to look into the home birth world and see how we do the, th the same things postpartum that they do somehow. Somehow we do the newborn screen. Somehow we, we can give vitamin K if we have to. We can give, uh, put erythromycin in if we have to. Uh, we do a, new, you know, a, new, a physical exam on the baby. We come back the next day or the day after and check on the baby and check on the mother and you know, probably give the mother more attention with breastfeeding and things like that than they do in the hospital. But if all they know is the hospital model, I mean, there's no excuse for that behavior, what you're describing anyway. That is just It's bullying. not that's informed just, consent. That's just for bullying. Sure. That's just right. bullying. Right. All right. I mean, that's threatening. I mean, the, the, and that, by the way, that's coercion. And that, even the, uh, in the American college, much to its credit, has a, has a guide, a clinical guideline out on that coercion is absolutely forbidden. Yeah, I wonder what we can do about about those two things because I feel like it really does control families' decision making a lot because they're afraid. Well, I think there's people things being done. I, um, there are people with ImprovingBirth.org and some other organizations that are working on some projects to make it much more known. And I guess I guess they're they're combining social media possibly. Uh, a production like a, a movie or a documentary to m make it much more known about some of the co uh, coercion and some of the forced interventions that go on against women's right. wills. And again, mm -hmm. when I say women's wills, I'm talking about our profession. I mean, this goes on in 
in in orthopedics and in um, internal medicine as well. I mean, but Dr. Seuss' podcast is basically about the obstetrical world uh, with a little bit of gynecology and hockey thrown in. <laughs> and that's it. All right. So, all right, I want to move on to another topic because uh, we were just talking about uh, things that can go on at a home birth, and and there was a there was a paper that I saw. And uh, it, it was titled that home births in rural areas are just as safe as home births in the city. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, there was a lot of people empirically that would think, well, because they're far away from a hospital or, you know, I remember um, uh, in a paper against home birth, the, the Cornell boys um, often would, would cite statistics from South Australia as opposed to, to, to refute home birth in the United States. They would take the fact that you know, there were problems in certain areas of South Australia where the nearest hospital is like 300 miles away, mm-hmm. okay, which has no bearing on where, you know, in the United States. But there are very a lot of areas in the rural parts of, of our country that have delayed access more than an hour, two hours to the nearest hospital, even further. And so some recommendations have been made against people having home births in those areas. This is the first study um, to look at that and determine whether or not that was actually valid. And... Their premise was with rural healthcare provider shortages, rural hospital tr- closures, and greater travel distances, it could be expected that there would be an increased time to seek emergency backup care that would result in poorer outcomes, said lead study author Elizabeth Nethery, a researcher at the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. A lot of these good studies come out of Canada. Sometimes they're not so good, though. The breach ones that come out of Canada aren't so good. But anyway, they had 18,723 women in this study. Okay. And what we found instead is that the rural women and their babies do not appear to have any added risks when planning a home birth or in a birthing center compared with non-rural women. Okay. And she said about 22% of women in the, in the United States live in rural areas with very limited access to obstetrical care, um, researchers, no, researchers noted in the journal Birth. Despite declines in hospital-based obstetric services, however, midwifery care at home and in freestanding birthing centers is available in many rural communities. All right. The current study is the first to look at the risks of rural versus urban women who give birth at home in, or in freestanding birth centers in the U- U.S., the author said. Okay, here's, one, here's the thing I love. Okay, Overall, about 95% of rural mothers and 94% of urban mothers in the study had a normal, spontaneous vaginal delivery, the study found. Right. So just basically saying they have a 5 to 6% C-section rate in home birthing, whether you do it at home, uh, in, in the rural area or the urban area. 5% is about what I would say. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I've been quoting people like 7 or 7%. And I also quote from my reading, and I can't remember because my brain is so full of stuff, but I can't remember where I got it. But I, I believe that that the similar cohort of women, first-time mothers coming in with head-down babies, uh, to uh, having laboring at home versus the hospital, the C-section rate is 7% for home birthing. Transport rate's about 15% or 20%, but the C-section rate's about 7% because most of those other ones go on and just get an epidural and pitocin and deliver. Mm-hmm. And the same cohort of women walking into a hospital have a 21 to 22% cesarean section rate. So in other words, Amazing. the cesarean section rate is three times higher in the same cohort of women simply because of the model and the location of where they're giving birth and how women are, are sort of restricted and, and the mammalian model is not followed in the, in the hospital well, setting. Well, I look at Ina May's statistics in her books. 2%. I thought 2%. It, was, it was two? 
C-section rate, I think. Yeah. I mean, like one or two percent. Over, you know, what is that, 40 years, right? Yes. That she's been doing that. So I don't know. To me, that feels like that's probably really a good representation if we just kind of left birth alone, that that would be the necessity. And also saying that when you leave birth alone, emergencies happen much less frequently. Right. Again, and these were all properly selected, healthy women, you know, not people with preeclampsia, not people with preterm labor, not people with multiples, not breaches. Um, these were all singleton, cephalic, healthy mothers at term. Okay. Um, then they went on to talk about the limitations of the study. And I thought, you know, whenever you look at a study, you don't want to be all one-sided. So you sort of look at the material and method section. I didn't get a chance to actually pull the study. But they do talk about the limitations of the study, which include reliance on the woman's residential zip code to decide whether they lived in an urban or rural area and to estimate how far they might need to travel to a hospital in emergency. So there's some flaws in that because some rural areas may have, you know, their zip code might be only three blocks from a different zip code that's got a big hospital in it. Right. Right. The study was also too small to detect slight but clinically meaningful differences in the chances of rare neonatal complications. But I would say that 18,000 women, um, I'm not sure how many were at home and how many were in the hospital, it doesn't say in this article, but... But that's a pretty big, pretty big number. But yes, you you need you need huge numbers, over hundreds of thousands of women, to actually find out whether there's statistical differences in things like cerebral palsy, uh, spinal cord injury, those sorts of things. So they're so rare, right? Which is why in some of these papers they do what's called composite injuries, where they include things like broken neck and bruised scrotum in the same grouping because that gives them some more in, more clinical power to their study, but it also leads to less accuracy. Right. But if they want to prove that's like I, this is the way it's done in breach studies a lot, is they'll include bruised balls and babies with uh, cerebral palsy in the same grouping, right? All right, as an injury. Yes. Okay, and that's you, you know to, cru- to include transient injury or to include uh, short-term respiratory assistance with something as severe, you know, as a, as a permanent injury is is dishonest. It's just dishonest. But it's a technique used in scientific research, which just tells you a little bit about scientific research. So you have to be very discerning. Very careful. But their conclusion is, even so, the findings should reassure women that a home birth or birthing center delivery does not need to come with any extra risk of complications as long as women are appropriately screened for any medical issues, that we, like we just discussed, that would make a hospital delivery the safer choice. Say an Aaron Wright, a midwife and researcher at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing in Baltimore, who was not involved with the study, but had taken a critical look at it. So that's pretty cool. It is cool. Don't you think? I'd like a copy of that. Well, I'll give you a copy. You can have it. Here it is. <laughs> all right. So anyway, look at, awesome. you know, the time has just flown by. All right. We really didn't get to a whole lot of other stuff, but you know what? We got podcast 122. Good job. Which will be coming up shortly. So um, we hopefully, by the time you are hearing this podcast, that the fires are out. Yes. And that peace reigns in Southern California. And wherever you are living, you have a uh, Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday season. Um, this has uh, been me, Dr. Stu, with my friend and colleague, Blister. <laughs> Bliss Young. You can reach Bliss at? Uh, birthing Bliss. That's with a Y, B-L-Y-S-S dot com. And again, I would love you to email us with comments or questions. I've been getting a lot of emails lately uh, with, with uh, uh, questions about certain things that we talked about in previous podcasts, which maybe we'll get into in 122. Um, at AskDrStu at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook, find us on iTunes. Again, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.